All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone, before we jump into this episode, super excited about our newest sponsor, Reserve. Big shout out to Reserve. They are the easiest way to design, deploy, and govern stable coins backed by a diverse set of assets with access to DeFi yield and insurance. If you don't know Reserve, we're super excited about them here at Bell Curve. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Community is bullshit, and it is a overused meme um, around launching tokens. And I think the part that, like, is very frustrating for me is that like who are you even talking about when you say community like if you can't clearly define a stakeholder group within your organization then they're not meaningful enough participants all right buddy another episode another good oh, one this was a oh, this is a great i'm so excited <laughs> all right buddy <laughs> all right but well I'm, I'm switching to from coffee to tea i've got some uh, some matcha oh. green tea here so oh. yeah, i think this i think this makes me more. this is less, it's not that i'm not excited it's just me more balanced you know you put milk in your tea or uh, like, just rip the tea solo i i put milk in i put nice. milk in nice. all right i i'll i'll give all right i'll drop it in the show notes how i make my tea uh you can all you can all see that but for now <laughs> let's talk about this episode it's a great episode with jules and uh charles st louis this was all about what are some of the new and exciting innovations that are being done in governance land and specifically with DAOs. We wanted to do an episode. So far, we sort of looked at what is the current status quo for DAOs? How does governance look like today? What are some of the big problems? What lessons should we borrow from corporate governance, et cetera? I think we wanted to dedicate an episode to what are some of the edge case experimentation that's happening in DAO land and governance world. And these two, I'd say they're two of the people that are on the very frontier of that. And we got to hear a lot of the experimentation that's being done in this episode also, the banter is just flowing. There's both of them. Can't speak good flow. enough. They're good just, flow to the episode. Good flow. Yeah. It's good no, flow sure, to the yeah, episode. I really, like, I mean, Charles St. Louis has has this like really deep experience. He was at MakerDAO for a while in the early days um, and just working on some really interesting experiments at Element. And then Jules is like pushing the pushing the frontier, I would say, of what's, what's possible in on-chain, on-chain organizations. So, yeah, this was... Totally agree. Yeah, really like this one. All right. For more information about how I might uh, make my tea, stick around. You'll get it at the end of the episode. Stick around. That's what. That's why the <laughs> folks are here. Let's get into it. All right, guys. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Today, uh, Yano and I are joined by Jules and Charles St. Louis. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Mike, this right, is uh, going to be an episode where you clap every time you ask a question, is it? Is it <laughs> I am an Italian. I speak with my hands. You know this. We're big just clappers in Metropolis, so out. I just approve of it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'll do a clap. I'll do a bow. I've got all manner of uh, you know body language that I'm willing to bust out. All right, for those of you on video. Beautiful. Uh, uh, Jules, I warned you about this before the call. I'm going to put you on the spot. I fair warning to everyone listened. I I, I listened to Jules describe uh, her sort of vision for DAOs and and what the important context was to understand around them a little while ago. I haven't been able to get out of my head since. So with that high bar, Jules, can I just start from your 10,000 foot view on on how you think about DAOs in general? I'm worried that I'm now going to undercut this like grand explanation <laughs> no I have of DAOs. No, no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> um, it was probably me going on like a little bit of a rant um, in the frustrations around what a DAO is. And I think, 
in the last cycle, we had like 10 million articles come out of like, what is a DAO? Like DAO, let's get down into it. And none of them really got to the point of it. Um, and I think just generally we built a lot of misconceptions around um, DAOs and on-chain organizations in sort of the last 12 to 18 months in which DAOs had like a little explosion um, because it was more based around like the social implementations around these organizations like uh, holacracy, um, like co-ops, and it was more attached to these like social implementations rather than the technical implementations, which is essentially building on-chain organizations. Um, and so that is sort of the view I come to it now, which is um, these are organizations that are built on this novel concept called the blockchain, um, which we are all very familiar with. Uh, and at its core, that means that um, the very makeup of these organizations is defined by their on-chain structures, activity, and permissions that exist um, on-chain. So I think there's probably a lot less DAOs based on that definition that exist um, than what we probably think of. So that's kind of how I like to think about DAOs. So maybe let's try to flesh out um, some more details about, about what that really means. So, you know, the, the pretty famous theory of the firm, right? The theory of the firm is just a nexus of contracts. So when I hear you say DAOs are an on-chain organization, it's a nexus of maybe smart, smart contracts, right? Or smart contract code. Can you kind of walk me through the ways in which an on-chain organization, which is, uh, you know, smart contract executed is different from what we have today with uh, COSA's theory of the firm. This is another little mini rant that I love to go on is um, a few months ago, I listened to this wonderful podcast from Planet Money, I think, and it was talking about productivity in the United States. And essentially, like over the last 100 years, productivity has just been like skyrocketing. Like we just become more and more productive as a workforce, like every year. And there's like a lot of obvious answers to that. like industrial revolution, like computers, the internet, these are all things that make us like increasingly more productive over over time. Um, but what's super interesting is that in the last 10 to 20 years, when, you know, technical innovation and software is at an all time high, we've actually be like our productivity levels in the United States, at least have completely plateaued. So we haven't we have like lost our ability to become more and more productive. And so we've kind of hit like the ceiling in our ability to uh, grow and become more effective as an organization. Um, my sort of theory around that is that uh, in the last 10 to 20 years, like what we've been innovating on is the measurement of activity in these organizations rather than the execution um, of actions within these organizations. So we're pushing people further away from the decision-making abilities of an organization rather than bringing them closer to that meat space. Um, and as a result, creating much more transaction costs because we're involving so many decision makers and so closely trying to monitor and measure the activity within these organizations, um, which isn't to say like measuring activity and KPIs and all these things isn't beneficial, but that is kind of like the direction that traditional organizations have grown in in the last, again, 10 to 20 years. So I think that's where we have like a really like unique opportunity with DAOs is that we're actually uh, 
allowing ourselves to bring us closer to the execution meet space. Like that is what the blockchain enables is execution abilities in a trustless format. Um, and I think that's where there's like a real opportunity with on-chain organizations is that we get to rely on this new trust mechanism um, and create, you know, more executable formats. Um, and we are more easily to monitor and measure those things since everything is open and public. Jules, I could keep going down this line of questioning for you. Charles, I'd love to get your thoughts here. Uh, and if you agree or wildly disagree and, uh, you know, tag you in here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, there is a lot of pressure on like the term DAO to kind of emulate or N plus one, like certain organizational structures from like traditional like finance or tech and, and whatnot, and, like kind of have those like different like hierarchies. And a lot of people do dream of having like the idealistic flat organization of a DAO. But what I'm starting to realize is that I think like the working group format for like DAOs in general might not be the most scalable because like they're kind of like siloed. And then the com mean or the com channels or the communication channels between these groups is often like fragmented. So like when certain groups work on other things, it doesn't really work it like efficiently. And like, yeah, everything has to go on chain or like be recorded somehow. But I, I like the idea. I'm not sure how familiar you all are with um, runes for MakerDAO's like end game plan. Like there are parts of that that are very complicated. And yes, it can be kind of broken down better. But the idea that you have like actual teams working like in kind of competitive nature or together versus having like working groups like separate so like having a team with like a marketing person a, like a couple kind of protocol devs and, and different teams like that can actually make things push forward more faster and i'm starting to kind of appreciate that model more as i've seen kind of working groups from like ens gitcoin even element for example um bit of a tangential point from what you asked, but that is something that I've kind of noticed on like a lot of people see like DAOs as more automated, like on-chain transparent organizations from the past. But I think maybe we should probably like define something newer and like not just follow on that path. There are things that work from the past, like I'm sure we'll get into it later, but like council models with board of directors, like I do see that kind of scaling decision makings in DAOs. We don't want to like take everything from the past and kind of like emulate it. Charles, what's the, um, Jules laid out this really nice like framework for just like, what is a DAO? I think at the beginning, what, what maybe like take what Jules said one step further and like, why, what is the benefit of being a DAO in your mind? Is it the transparency? Is it like, it's a organization that's built to be global from day one? What, what, what is the benefit? I mean, the global nature is something that kind of comes with like the internet being accessible to everyone like that's awesome but i think i mean it's more of a high level point but what i really like with DAOs is in like traditional tech and, and finance and like operations whatever you have the ability of founders to continue working with their company in private make a lot of money and, and like have the company grow internally and so on or you can have an ipo or you can get acquired but like with the the concept of DAOs, it now allows your founders and core team to actually pass over or at least support control from your entire most like active users and community. So it's like not just like the founders and the team that built this thing. Now, like everyone gets to build it together and shape how they want it, whether the vision changes or continues. I think that's really like awesome. I have a so I've got a maybe a couple of different lines of, of questioning here. And um, 
maybe maybe Jules just just talking about let me let me ask actually both of you a, a high level question. Do DAOs have to be are they the appropriate form? Can you have a DAO without it being based on a crypto protocol? Maybe let's start from there. I feel like again to my earlier point on what a DAO is, like I am more focused on on-chain organization. So I think that is the key element of it is like again what what's our trust assurance that we're operating off of and that's what defines like the organizations that i'm interested in we sometimes call them DAOs, um but i'm more focused on like on-chain organizations so yes i think that it is a essential part of it um let's let's like dig in about how that on-chain structure could minimize trust. Let's call them trust interactions, right? So I'm just trying to, to piece that onto my own experience of uh, trying to manage a, a small business, basically, uh, you know, which Blockworks. Um, and some of the areas that have like really surprised me, like, first of all, when you're joining a company, there's some element of trust that like you have to, when you're going through the interview process, you have to trust that the vision that you're being painted from the people that are trying to recruit you is an accurate one. Maybe to t say something that we take for granted, but this does happen sometimes. You have to trust that your employer is going to pay you for the services that you actually uh, perform, right? That's supposed to be like a baked in assumption, but sometimes people don't end up getting paid. You have to pay, you have to trust that the other participants of the organization that you've been hired are capable at doing their jobs, right? There are all these like different trust uh, assumptions and interactions that are built into getting recruited at a company. I'd love to know like how that might be different. Cause those are some of the first things that I thought about, especially around payments. Like one thing that has amazed me is that you can just not pay your bills and there's nothing that you can really do. You know, if it's under a certain threshold, which shocked me and upset me deeply uh, when I found that, found that out. Um, but what, what, are, what are some of the other ways that a, an on-chain organization might minimize some of those, uh, trust requirements? Yeah. So this is something that we have talked a lot about at Metropolis. Um, we actually wrote uh, an interesting framework um, around what we call socialware and trustware, which is kind of trying to like get at the meat of this. Um, and just to like lay it out, the way that we think about socialware um, is a mechanism that creates assurances through human relationships. And as a result, it has like a very high social coordination cost of maintaining. Um, whereas Trustware is a mechanism that creates assurances through technology. Um, and as a result, has a much lower social coordination cost. So, and basically tr like traditional organizations are completely reliant on Socialware. There are very few instances in which they have, um, again, like offboarded some of those execution uh, or decision rights into trustware. Um, so again, also just to, like create a parallel, you can kind of think of socialware as a lemonade stand, like, you know, it's $5, I'm agreeing to give you $5 and you're giving me a lemonade in exchange. I'm just assuming that we are making a benevolent like contract here and we are both gonna uphold our end of the agreement. Whereas trustware is more of like a vending machine. Like I put my $5 in and I am automatically and pretty much guaranteed to get eliminated unless there's some like technical flaw in the vending machine. Um, and basically, like, as I kind of said, traditional organizations sort of over index on social wear. Um, and that is kind of like 
you know, you joining a company and saying, we're going to pay you, we're going to, um, you know, these are the values and this is the mission that we abide by. These are the sort of policies of our organization. Like that's all just social wear. You're just trusting those people to maintain these agreements that they've made to you or these promises they've made to you. But we've also seen like a ton of problems with that. Um, and I think that's where we see a ton of problems in, in DAOs today is people not implementing the trustware element of it. A trustware example is like a governor contract. That is the contract that um, allows you to do token voting on chain. Um, that is a binding agreement. And uh, there's no way to really go around that. Like we've seen a ton of fatal examples in which that has actually worked against organizations. For example, Compound themselves um, having a technical like vulnerability and them essentially just watching money be drained over a seven day period that the time lock governor contract um, was waiting for those technical changes to be implemented. Like these are trusted executable contracts with our, which are backed by technology and code rather than us trusting on individuals as people. Just another something that kind of springs to mind is maybe some of you who are listening might have had the experience for getting recruited for a company of, oh, you're going to oversee X, Y, and Z things. And you're going to have all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. But then when you join, maybe the reality doesn't match up to what you were sold. And maybe you have less buy-in and say-so uh, than you were otherwise promised. And that would be maybe an example of social wear. Could the trust wear analog to that be, well, actually you are given some amount of tokens which guarantees you uh, say over X, Y, and Z things. Do you see, like, is that an example of that? Or am I trying to, is my five-year-old brain uh, going? No, no, no. I, I hear your question is essentially around the difference between ownership and control is kind Basically. of what I'm hearing. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's kind of the unsolved problem is like we've kind of created the solution for, um, like simple ownership um, and that with simple things, ownership and control are one-to-one. -one. Um, but as we get more sophisticated in you know, the systems that we're creating, the relationship between who owns something and control something is um, increasingly complicated. And um, I think like the point you're sort of getting at is that governance tokens don't represent that very well, or maybe you're actually making the opposite agreement um, or argument. I'm arguing that governance tokens do not um, represent control very well. Sure, they might represent ownership, but just because you have, you know, a certain stake in the company and the or a certain token allocation in the organization you're participating in. That doesn't really guarantee your control in the organization, but I think that's more because of the current state of, of DAOs. I do think there are ways to have like your governance token be a denomination of voting power in your entire DAO, though. Like for example, like we denominate everything in like way in certain areas in Ethereum or like USD in like the states mm -hmm. or CAD. Like if you have a certain kind of denomination of voting weight in a system, I think a governance token is really great for that. The only way to like kind of split it up is like using different voting techniques to have like multipliers on that for like different audiences, different like people, different working groups and all of that. I think that would be a really like cool use to see move forward with governance tokens. But yeah, I agree mm. with you. There are a lot of problems with it now based on what you said. Yeah. But I think it's just like fundamentally these systems weren't intended for this. Like governance mm -hmm. tokens are just regulatory arbitrage. Like they 
are saving everyone's ass. Someone from said going it. To prison. Someone said it on the podcast. I've been waiting for that one. All right. <laughs> <laughs> <So funny. laughs> Only took um, five episodes. <laughs> yeah. Jason and I, so we were talking about this before we got on here and we were like, what's your like big takeaway? Like we've done, you know, four episodes in this series so far. It's like, it's regulatory arbitrage. That's the, that's right, right now at yeah. the current, at I the mean, current I feel state. Like, I feel like Hasu said that though, like, or he, he might have not said yeah. it directly, but he was talking around it. Like a big part of DAOs is regulatory arbitrage. And like, I think, sorry, you go, Yana, you had a point. <laughs> Uh, no, I have. I had no. No, I no no. I okay. I'm just, I'm just happy that I'm just happy that you brought that up. I, but I did have another question for you, Jules, on the social wear versus trust wear thing. Um, okay. I, I read the piece. I, I really like. I, I read the piece. I think it was a couple months ago that you guys put it out. I remember, like maybe over the summer or something. I'm trying to remember. So a little foggy, but I, I like the way that you laid out. My where my mind goes though is like the reason that startups specifically and companies do social wear instead of like trust wear is because it's really easy. Like socialware is super yeah. flexible. It's really easy to implement. It's mm -hmm. like, you you don't need like at Blockworks, like let's say when Blockworks is starting, mm -hmm. we didn't have a bunch of engineers. So like, sure, Trustware sounds great, but like, A, we didn't have like engineers who could go implement this. And B, what Blockworks looked like in Q1 of 2018 was like a world of difference from Blockworks in Q2 of 2018, which was different than like Blockworks the next month even. So if we had implemented like Trustware in 2018, well, Blockworks in 2019 would have been like a disaster. So I'm just curious how you how you think about like that shift from socialware to trustware. That's a really good question. And you're completely right. Trustware is expensive. Like it's way easier to be a lemonade stand instead of building an entire vending machine. Like that is expensive. It's complicated. There's risks involved, all of those things. We've also internally debated, um, you know, does something how the transition from social wear to trust wear. Um, but I think a lot of what we sort of landed on when we were writing that, that framework is that you need to have like basically governance market fit or social market fit around the social wear before you can implement the trust wear. Because I think a huge problem that we saw in, or even in DAOs today is that they too quickly jumped the gun on the trustware and then it didn't match the social systems of their organization. So token governance is a perfect example of that. You know, to make sure that um, they were credibly decentralized, um, especially in regards to regulation, people launch a governance, or sorry, people launch a governor Bravo contract for token weighted voting. Um, and then no one shows up to vote. And it's like, what? what's happening here? Why is no one voting? But it's, again, like there were never social systems around a plutocratic system. Like there was a core team that was running the show behind the scenes and then decided to invite, you know, a community into the, into the process of it at an arbitrary date. And now we're expecting everyone to catch up with the social system of plutocratic voting yeah charles how do you think about at element and um charles before this were you were you you were a maker if i'm remembering yeah or, yeah i was the decentralized governance architect there and before that was uh just a technical engineering consultant um helping with mcd so pretty pretty yeah 
relevant, I would say, to this uh, on the on the maker side of things. Um, like, how do you think about when almost what what Jules is saying here? Like, when do you move from when do you implement this? When do you implement like the social contracts to become like real con like uh, technical contracts? Or move from social work yeah, to trustworthy. I mean, Maker is an interesting case because like the token existed before like the actual protocol, um, so you can't really retroactively like shift around like supply. I mean, yeah, there's like mint and burn functionalities in the system to like increase decrease supply to like increase voting weight, but um, with Maker, I mean, they had a governance contract. It was the first on-chain um, voting system in Ethereum, and they introduced this over a long period. There's like a voting portal. So like, yeah, I mean, I think earlier in the earlier days, they just had kind of team speak calls um, every Sunday um, where people would like talk and like give updates on building. And then after a couple of years, I mean, after MCD launched, they then decided to um, create a proposal framework, much like BIPs, EIPs inspired by Python's enhancement proposals, PEPs. And that's when like the actual process that had been kind of occurring with just token voting was formalized into like stages and proposal frameworks and like who's involved in different people. That's what I worked on. And like looking back, I think, I mean, still working today, the only thing that I would probably change is like introduce less process up front. Cause like this thing was extremely thorough, like robust, like stages for everything, different stakeholders. It was almost too much to handle right away. And I think that is one of the kind of like things that DAO should learn from makers in that early stage of launching a DAO, like you need to be open, like you need to be lean like a startup where you can like work together in a small group with like very little process and get stuff done. And I think like a lot of DAOs too early set too early social frameworks with processes, for, especially for asset onboarding, that stuff like bogs down so many protocols. And then like once you've learned that, got the training wheel shaken off, you can then put a process in place that reflects like the most optimal and efficient in many cases, you don't even need like processes for asset onboarding because it's like a permissionless deployment. Um, but yeah, my recommendation and lesson from that is that like too much social process early on actually like slows down and like. I think that's such a good point, Charles, too, because I think everyone knows like bureaucracy is the killer, like across any type of organization and like too much process equals bureaucracy. Um, and I think it's kind of an interesting pattern we've gone into into DAOs is that we over index on the upfront processes and we don't pay enough attention to the um, more like consequential actions. Like what drawback measures do we have? And it's kind of like optimistic governance. Like why are we not assuming people are acting benevolently and then have drawback powers in case, you know, they make a bad decision or there's veto actions. Um, and instead we've done the reverse of like, let's put all of this bureaucracy and rules up front and then make people go through these really lengthy processes in order to make a decision. I think in part, it's definitely due to like laziness and like not as much of a prioritization on like governance being important when in reality, governance is the backbone of your protocol. Once you've launched it, like it's what's going to make or break your protocol in the future, whether you like it or not. And I think too many projects, especially mm -hmm. like summer when things were just like cranking up, they just forked like whatever they use snapshot and multi-sig and like they put very little attention to it. And they just expected people to do these things. They didn't think about the actual use case of governance in their system. They just like took the mm -hmm. quick route, lazy route and like pushed it forward. They said they like 
develop it over time, but in many cases they just kind of left it and never innovated, which is why governance innovation has been lacking until kind of this year. Charles, can you talk about the just the governance element and like how you've taken everything that you've learned at Maker and like what you set up there and you've you've, you've implemented some really cool stuff. So can you just expand on that? Yeah, for sure. I love talking about it. Um, I might talk a bit too much, so cut me off. Um, yeah, so learned a lot from Maker. I mean, obviously the system's still working today. There's definitely um, a lot of improvements to be made, but it's still robust and working in, in, in many ways. Um, but like the main things we wanted to do kind of with Element is to, first of all, like make governance way more inclusive. So like, as Jules was saying earlier, the one token, one vote is just like not an inclusive thing. It's like plut plutocratic. Um, it just doesn't really like scale either. So we introduced this concept called voting vaults, which essentially allow you to assign voting power to any like use case. And like, that's very vague. So a couple examples would be, if you have a governance token and as opposed to in Maker where you just stake your MKR in the voting contract and all you can do is vote, there's a huge opportunity cost there. There's a lot of um, capital inefficiency. So what you could do now with the voting vault is have like essentially an, an LP vault where like your governance tokens in an LP position and you can still delegate or vote in the system or like borrow in Maker, Compound or Aave and like still be able to do that. But the coolest part is you're actually allowed to use a voting vault to do things like NFT ownership. like. And it's all based on like a denomination of voting power of that governance token, like I mentioned earlier. So for example, like for all the core team in Element with um, the core team investors, advisors, they're in a vesting vault with a lower multiplier. I think it's like almost more than half. So for everyone in the system who has one L5 governance token, all the voting power of those core team members is half of that. Um, but the ones that I really want to see it unfold is like an L1, L2 synthesis. So you can vote on L2 like gaslessly and then a post L1. The last one is like an identity verified vault. So you actually kind of, you can assign voting power to your GitHub contributors, your Discord members, your people who run like governance calls and give them voting power on the system. The more voting vaults you have in the system, the more equal your whole like ecosystem is weighted in terms of voting power. So it's not just like the token holders who can buy it on the open market having a say. It's like kind of, balance through everything. That's my favorite part of the system. The other part that we kind of mentioned earlier is the Governance Steering Council, which is kind of inspired by board of directors and like traditional um, companies. Um, and the idea there is that we didn't do it on an election style because it's really hard to offboard people once you've kind of elected them through an election model. You'd have to like put up a proposal, emergency offboard them, which would take weeks and whatnot. So we did a delegation threshold. So if someone meets a delegate, the delegation threshold, they can opt in to be a GSC member. And what that comes with is authority, because in a lot of DAOs, a lot of teams who are voted in paid by the protocol don't actually have authority or the area of expertise to get shit done. They basically just kind of go through the regular process that everyone has to, and that's like really inefficient. So the GSC members can spend part of the treasury up to a certain limit. They can put proposals directly on chain instead of the whole process. And they can be assigned many other powers as like they kind of gain respect in the community. Um, and we have like in Element right now, I think we have nine GSC members. They pushed like forward a bunch of proposals. They've done some like asset diversification and things like that. But the cool thing here is that the GSC contract is actually a voting vault, which assigns like a certain amount of like voting power to them and makes it cyber resistant. So everyone in the GSC only has one vote. It's not like their delegation vote kind of outweighs the other GSC members. They each have one vote and there's certain thresholds for them to pass things. 
So that model can be used for other like councils as well. Like if you want to have like people have ex expertise over like protocol engineering and push fixes up in emergency situations, you could have a council for technical experts where they're there. If something bad happens, they can push things something right away and fix it. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Those are my two favorite parts. I can keep going, but I'll probably pause here. I, no, it's really interesting. What What is the, when you think about the system that you set up, what is the main thing that you're trying to solve for with this system? I think there's a few things. Um, I mean, one is liquid democracy just doesn't scale. Like, why does everyone have to have a say in something? Like, it doesn't even work in like the real world. Like it just results in poor decisions often. Um, so why can't we have that more representative democracy model where like you're trusting these people to make decisions, scale things faster and so on. So one is like scaling decisions in DAOs. Like I think scalability, like excluding the concept of scalability from like blockchains, like in DAOs, it's like scaling the amount of decisions that can happen per period of time in a DAO. So that is the number one thing we're scaling for. Two is like the problem I meant with inclusivity and plutocracy in like the blockchain world is like actually making your DAOs like people in your DAOs be able to vote no matter what position they're in. And um, the third is kind of more on like the funding model, which I didn't really get into around like optimistic grants. So a play on like the optimistic roll ups, but also um, governance where like you assume the best in a grantee because every grant system I've ever encountered like assumes that the grantee is going to fail and that the, the way the compensation is like kind of set that way and like also like their milestones. So this way is like if they don't, if, if no one calls this function that they're not like getting their stuff done, like the funds are basically given to the grantee. If not, like you have the ability to claw it back through governance. Um, but I think that model hasn't really been tested yet, but I'm really excited to see that happen. How would you rank the success thus far of the the element governance experiment? I think it hasn't been enough time to really like gauge all these different um, things. Um, like the GSC has nine people, which is awesome. I mean, they're actually putting votes forward. There's working groups, but I don't think it's been through like a, a tough situation yet. And like, I think it definitely needs to do that before I can like answer that question. Um, the one thing that I really like about the model is it is built for experimentation. So the governance system has one core voting contract, um, core system, and everything else is a module on top of that. So like the GSC, like a time lock, a treasury, like a spender contract, voting vaults, they're all kind of like tools in your tool belt that you can kind of plug into this core voting contract. So if the GSC ends up not scaling the DAO, like you can basically just like cut ties with that and go back to normal delegation. Or if like you don't want a time lock, I don't know why you would, but like you can remove that. And it the whole system is kind of just built so it's a modular aspect that can be kind of shaped to whatever DAO or use case that you want, whether it's like a certain type of governance model of like democracy, representative democracy, like whatever you choose and remove that. Um, but for now the GSC is working, but who knows if like it doesn't end up scaling, like we might just kind of like deprecate it and go back to delegation. There was a tweet no, from. Don't that <laughs> I don't want that to happen. No. Wait, Jules, tell me why you tell tell me why you say that though. I mean, I think it would just. Um, I think it's just so sad. Like I am have so much respect for the Element team and what Charles has done, in just like t continually creating experiments and like trying to create newness. Um, rather than just like defaulting to what we are using in front of us. And so that's why I say that is like, 
even if it does fail, which I mean, who knows? I think it's been really successful so far. Um, I think that just further proves like another avenue for people to explore rather than like continuously falling back on like what we know are extremely broken methods, such as like the traditional delegation model that we have. All right, everyone, brief break in the show here to talk about our newest sponsor, Reserve. So, you know, it's looking pretty bleak out there. It's not looking that great. We know the one thing there's no bear market in? Stable coins. Stables, baby. Stables. We love those stable coins, uh, which is why we're excited to partner with Reserve Protocol. So let's just start with the basics. What is Reserve? It's a self-service platform to build, deploy, and govern asset-backed stable coins, uh, which can be integrated with DeFi or within the real economy. So the cool thing about Reserve is basically anyone out there permissionlessly can take any set of ERC-20 tokens and use them to collateralize their own stablecoin. So the long-term goal of the Reserve Protocol is to create a non-inflationary currency that is stable on a month-to-month basis, but also a century-to-century basis. In the meantime, though, they're open-sourcing design decisions for stablecoins, which is just super, super cool. I think one of the benefits that you get there is diversification. You hear it all the time in Finance 101, no such thing as a free lunch except for diversification. That's what you're getting with Reserve Protocol. Yeah. I've known the team for a long time. I spoke on a panel at SF Blockchain Week with Nevin, uh, with Joe Carlson and, and Alex Gladstein. Really impressive uh, growth that they've been able to have so far, right? Their premier stablecoin is RSV. It is backed by three other stables. It's already used by over half a million people transacting over $300 million a month. Right now, like Mike was talking about, anyone can go create a custom bespoke stablecoin using the reserve protocol. You can back it by maybe specific USD stables, or you can get uh, creative and you know maybe build something more complex like inversely correlated assets. The branding, governance, and composition are completely up to you. And lastly, if there are any builders who are listening and you aren't interested in issuing your own stablecoin, what you can do is you can stake reserves governance token against your favorite stable strategies. So what you're doing there is you're providing backstop insurance to stablecoin holders. Not riskless, right? Not financial advice. There's definitely some risk in doing that, but it does allow you to earn yield, especially now in crypto when there are so few ways to do that it's definitely worth checking out. So at the very least, you should click the link at the bottom of this episode, go check out the Reserve website, see all the cool stuff they're up to. Most importantly though, click this link. You gotta give Jason and me some credit here. Show right? us some love, uh, show us some love. Give us some love, baby, give us some love. <laughs> all right, now back to the show. Let's get into it. Do you guys think that, um, remember after DeFi summer, it was like every single startup raising was raising as a DAO. Like every, everyone was everyone was raising as, as a DAO. And then if you look at like the startups that raised in the last, Several months, really like no DAOs, I would say. It was everyone was kind of like, eh, maybe, maybe the DAO model doesn't make sense. Maybe it's like you start as a centralized company and then yeah, then you and then you figure out the DAO thing later. I'm curious how you when you look at like the next cycle, maybe what how will like will folks raise as a DAO? Like when will people pivot to become a DAO? Or maybe Jules, you'd be happier if I said on chain organization. Like when does uh like basically what's the how will this look? If you look at the like the facts of like all these teams raising that way, you'll probably see more teams that are actually just like research and development, like studios for lack of better terms, that are like building really cool stuff, like they're building protocols, whether it's like DeFi infrastructure um, and so on. And they're releasing these things into the wild and a DAO will help govern those individual projects. I think we'd probably see more teams that are like, just like engineering like powerhouses that are very kind of good at building things. And then after that, once it's kind of been released, like they'll be core contributors, but like it's up to governance to allow them to keep contributing. I think that would actually help like the, the idea of DAOs grow as well. 
versus like raising up as a DAO and like remaining like a core team as a DAO forever. I also just think that we um, potentially just like over index on like this North Star of like the DAO. Um, I still think that there are like a lot of really valuable things that um, like, for example, my team is, is working on um, that can help just like any organization that is interacting with crypto in some way. And I think like, obviously I really believe in on-chain organizations and DAOs because I think we have the potential to build very similar pa patterns like we see in, you know, the traditional world with legal patterns. Um, and these are like very common tools that are used by traditional organizations, but we don't really have that for like crypto native organizations. Um, but we have like a very unique opportunity because we're building it on this new trust mechanism, which is the blockchain. And I, even though I made a whole fuss of this earlier, like I do believe that like what tokens did for ownership, um, DAOs will do for enabling like new and different types of, of control. Um, but I think there's been like a huge bearishness around DAOs recently because like a lot of them have failed. Like there's been so many problems and a lot of the protections that we see in the traditional world, like don't exist on chain or on DAOs. Like for example, fiduciary duty is like a concept that whoever controls this thing must control it in a way that benefits the owners of that thing. Um, it's like very abstract and um it creates you know a mechanism for us to bridge that separation between ownership and control but you can't really like codify fiduciary duty on chain <laughs> and like this has been a theme in in MakerDAO is who um you know Andreessen stepping in and saying like okay who's actually running this shit like who is looking out for our interest um and I think a big part of this is just we need new primitives to sort of bridge that gap. Um, and I think that's just like where we have a lot of, of work to do, such as like what Charles has worked on with um, the Element team and like a big part of what we're working on at Metropolis too. So I think it's just like, we need these new mechanisms um, and primitives to be able to start to bridge the gap between ownership and control and some of the like responsibilities there. Look, the, the theme, to be honest, a little bit of this season is that we've been struggling to get people to say super positive. This is a very positive conversation. Uh, it's been, people are, it's easier to point out the stuff that isn't working at this particular moment in time than what is working. And what I love, we're, what we're starting to get at, uh, Chow Wang had a great tweet where a lot of crypto's detractors, it's very easy to point out the 99 things that crypto doesn't do as well, but they don't focus on the one thing that it does better than anyone else, and that would be very difficult to replicate on. The example that he used was mobile, like mobile tech. It's smaller, you don't have as much control over the screen, but it ended up winning because convenience. It did that better than anyone else. Um, and so that's what I'd like to, I think what Hasu meant was kind of this idea that, especially at the early stage of an organization, you want the people to be that are making decisions to be the most competent and incentivized people. But the way governments is, governance is being implemented today is this one token, one vote. Let's distribute the tokens as far and wide as possible. And it's a hindrance on decision making. So if you're just optimizing for what's good decision making right now, 
you would want to limit the surface area of your governance. Say, hey, I know we want this and we kind of need this for regulatory purposes, but we don't want it actually to be able to touch a lot of core parts of what we're doing with this protocol because if we have to submit everything to a vote, we're never going to get anything done. So I think, I don't want to totally speak for Hasu, but I think that's what he meant when he said that. Um, so I'd love to maybe just respond to, to that whole soliloquy. I also think what's in the background there is Hasu's also speaking from his experience with Maker that has been mm. extremely frustrating in the last like year or so. And he's been very vocal in saying like, who is deciding our strategy for Maker? Like who is, it's kind of like this untamed beast right now, which he's been very vocal about. So I think that he's also very much speaking from um, like, it actually has been a huge risk to Maker because I think Maker's governance expanded so robustly that it became, to Charles's earlier point, like a little bureaucratic and like overly robust. Um, and they might have kind of like foot gun themselves as in like they shot themselves in the foot um, and bottlenecked <laughs> like, that their own foot gunned. capabilities. That's <laughs> Such an official way of like, saying that. Favorite term. <laughs> I'm definitely taking that. I love I that. Common <laughs> that expression. Foot gunned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, I'll speak to what Hasu said about liabilities after this, but with like Maker, for example, I think it's just this huge debate between scaling the efficiency of the DAO, like through the model that Hasu and a few others tried to propose, which it was like basically a board of directors council. And so like the group of people in the ecosystem that want to scale the DAO, make decisions, have a vision and push it forward like an organization. And then the people who are like kind of true to like OGs of crypto, like ethos, flat organizations, like very complete, like autonomy and all of that. And like the governance system in terms of like voting weight is split between those two. So like every decision is kind of like 50, 50 almost, or like marginally close on each side. So like, that's why it's really tough to get any kind of vision or, or, or kind of more scalable processes in place because the 50% on the other side disagree with it. And that's definitely where his frustration comes in, in terms of like the liability side. I think that right now we're, we have the training wheels on for all our governance systems. We're doing a lot of things very manually and that's really important. It's not a liability, but it sucks and it causes voter apathy, voter fatigue, even like people just leaving the ecosystems, but it's really crucial to kind of have those people be here now train and maybe some of them leave, but the ones that stick around are going to be there to understand everything. And once the whole like governance system understands these things, you can then automate as much as possible, which is the goal of maker and always has been is to automate as much of governance as you can, but still have the ability for humans at the end of the day to step in in emergency situations. So they've done things like this with like the automated debt ceiling module where like a certain threshold is hit, it increases the debt ceiling and anyone in the community can sign a message. It doesn't require a vote. So like, I think governance needs to be automated as much as possible, but you do need to have that like dedicated aspect for humans to step in when it's necessary. And like, once we get to that level, I think people are going to complain a lot less about governance as a liability. There's this guy, um, I think his name is like Georgie Egorov. He's a, he wrote, he's like a, I think he does uh, managerial like economics and decision making at uh, at Northwestern, like smart, he wrote this paper that basically he laid out the argument that who is like, who is in power matters much more than what system of government you have. And there's this thought that democracy should perform much better because 
politicians are accountable, right? And in dictatorships, politicians are not accountable to anyone. So they should hypothetically perform worse, but this is not actually how the world works. And when you actually look at countries that perform really well, it's like, it, it's much more about who's in charge, less so about like the system of government that theory ends up breaking down. Actually, if you, if, if that, that's only in good, that's only in good markets, basically when things really like shit hits the fan, that's when dictatorships usually turn bad, um, is, is what this paper argues. But anyways, what, what would you, um, do you think that like DAO should look more to have, should they look at this paper for, as an example and say like, okay, we, we do need some leaders internally more. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, Charles, go ahead. You disagree. <laughs> I see like, that hell no. Jules like, hell yeah. <laughs> I don't think decentralized means that it's like flat or spread across too much. Like there can be leaders that emerge. I mean, that's like how natural kind of selection works anyways. Like the leaders emerge and like kind of show up when they need to be. Um, but yeah, I think, we almost focus too much on the, like, I mean, some DAOs just focus way too much on one of the three, like, letters. Like, you, it's really obvious when a, a DAO focuses way too much on the organization, making it like a traditional organization. And, like, when some, like, for example, Rai, like, they focus way too much on the autonomous part, where, like, everything's automated and, like, it causes problems and, like, you can't make a whole lot of changes and, and things like that. So, like, I think the... Like I said earlier, with like decentralization, um, it is a spectrum. So I mean, when you first launch, like maybe it's not going to be as decentralized as you want, but it allows you to actually like get the structures in place, like make the right decisions for like a base foundation layer, and then kind of spread it as you go. But I think decentralized is more the idea that anyone can join if they want to, not like an initial voting distribution. It's like this is a decentralized workforce where people can come in and like, if they're accepted, they can join. It's like permissionless to join versus like the other definition. Yeah. What do you think Jules? I don't actually think it's about making it open to everyone. Like I think that's how we've probably ended up in a bad situation. And I think, I mean, that's a whole other tangent, but to, like workforces and devs but um yana to your point around like um like over focusing on decentralization i think a lot of this too comes back to like who actually needs to decentralize because decentralization is still like very important in a lot of cases um like you decentralize because it makes things it makes things like durable robust and uncapturable which is very important in a lot of cases and i think like even though I know Vitalik's articles are like sometimes just kind of a mindfuck and overly dense and complicated, his concave and convex article was I thought honestly, that was great. That was a light bulb yeah, for me. Yeah. It was really good because he talked about first order organizations and basically organizations that need to decentralize. It's not like a cute, fun option where we're like, let's do this decentralization thing. It's like a must have. And the three reasons he gave for why you must decentralize are censorship resistance. So it cannot be captured by a single actor, um, like a corrupt actor. It can't be captured by a government, like, like regulation, et cetera, et cetera. These are super, super important, like in the case of Maker. There's also credible fairness, um, which is making sure you have like a diverse ecosystem of many stakeholders and that there's a robust governance. Like, there's provable robustness in that ecosystem. Like that can be 
Ethereum or ENS, like these are ecosystems that are providing like a very important public good. And if that infrastructure becomes compromised, like that's massively problematic to the value that they're providing and creating. And then the third reason he gave was the concave decision-making, which is like kind of complicated. And also I think like, yeah, it's not as clear where the lines are there. And I think a lot of people try to like bucket themselves into the concave decision-making, which is essentially like the middle area of decision-making. Like there are better outcomes when more people are participating in it rather, or like the middle ground of decisions rather than the extremes, which is like iffy territory. But I think the first two are like, there are very clear requirements around that of like who needs to decentralize in those cases. Uh, one one thought to share, and then a question that I want to mm -hmm. put back to you, Jules or or Charles, yeah, um, or you, you know, too. Uh, but I think I think the uh, <laughs> got thoughts. Um, the convex concave decision making. My when I was listening to him describe that, I actually think that has to do more with the maturity of an organization and kind of like expected value bets. Because in the beginning, many there are a couple big decisions that you want to be convex. It's like you sort of at a really early stage of a startup. I don't want to say you bet the farm, but you kind of bet the farm. And the reason why that makes sense is because if you, if the decision fails or you make the wrong decision, you end up failing. But if you make the right decision and you pivot your business model or hire the right person or whatever it is, there's like a hundred times upfold. And then as you get older and older in an organization, you know, you don't want to be making as many convex decisions because you're never going to get that hundred, you know, Apple's never going to hundred X from where it is today. Right? So the, all the decisions that Apple makes at a certain point, because of its upside potential, look more concave, I would, I would venture. But the question that I want to turn back to you is, is do you think that in terms of censorship resistant, what makes sense to be a DAO is actually a societal decision? And the example that I'll give to you is like power companies. We talked about power companies and utilities. If you just let power companies, you're, those are natural monopolies. If we didn't decide that everyone should have access to power, those companies could have infinite return on their capital because everyone's going to pay for that. It's completely inelastic demand, right? If we just let that roam free. But as a society, we've said, we don't think it's right that these companies should just be able to choose essentially the market rate or uh, you know price it at essentially the market rate. So we're going to regulate it because we think it's a societal good to provide cheap power to people. The Almost the opposite is true in terms of financial infrastructure. You could, I could sit here all day and Eric Voorhees does this more eloquently than I could do it, but he'll go and say, this is why it's a public good. We sh it's, a, it's a right. It's a fundamental human right why we should have neutral financial infrastructure. On a societal level, clearly Washington does not believe that. They just don't believe it. And so that, that's, you know, you, we could kind of sit here and be like, this is where it makes sense. But how much do you think that what ultimately ends up becoming infrastructure, what ultimately derives value from being decentralized or censorship resistance is less a technical thing, but more of a societal choice? Ultimate like adoption of like crypto and DeFi will ultimately be like a social thing. And I think like that will creep its way into like, like the hierarchies of social governments, politicians and, and so on. So, and I think the underlying thing that would probably push us through is like that it's like permissionless access to financial support and, and, and tools that is currently at a price point for a lot of people getting boxed out. So I think, I mean, the solution there to actually make that a real thing is that this is an open finance system, is a social solution. They don't think the technology will always be there. 
And I, th I do think that in this industry, we do focus way too much on having a technical solution to absolutely every problem, when in reality, a lot of it is just solving problems for humans. So I, I do think that um, society is definitely like the the focal point for anything that you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like a lot of it is also just trust. Like something I always come back to is that like a huge part of like DeFi is that we no longer have to like trust these centralized institutions that have traditionally failed us like quite massively in, in the past. And I think that is where there's a societal uh, change or difference is like the trust element of it. Um, and I think that's kind of like the direction that we're heading into is like, we have seen like bad actor after bad actor, like continue to create problems because of these, because they're obfuscating information and creating these black boxes. Um, like FTX is a perfect example of that, like trusted socially by many in the ecosystem, but they basically were able to create these complex webs of legal entities and personnel that were involved in this that completely obfuscated what was actually happening under the hood. And so I think eventually, like, this type of legibility will not be like an optional nice to have, it will be a requirement. Um, and I think that is like a huge part of DAOs as well is building out this legibility. One final kind of line of questioning for, for both of you, which is, this is where people get also divided a little bit, which is just in the value of the community. And you heard people talking about this a little bit more 12 months ago than you might today. And I'd just be curious what you both see the pros and cons of having a strong community are and where you ultimately see communities contributing to or what place do they, do they play in a DAO long term? I have a hot take on this. <laughs> and I take no credit for this. I give credit to uh, my friend Toby from Other Internet which is that community is bullshit and it is a overused meme um, around launching tokens. And I think the part that like is very frustrating for me is that like, who are you even talking about when you say community? Like if you can't clearly define a stakeholder group within your organization, then they're not meaningful enough participants. Yeah, I mean, I think the community is definitely like a broad way to just generalize like your users, your kind of like contributors, like researchers. It's like early on with Element, I mean, our community was just researchers helping us build and answer like tough questions. And like they were doing that because they wanted to be future users. So I, I think in, in many ways there are different types of communities, but like it does exist. And I mean, there's communities around like Nike, for example. Like, what's the value of that? I mean, I think that's what gives it, is like it the true value is like the people who actually support it, like they rep it, like they do things for it, like they believe in it. And like, that's like the kind of center point of every like company, whether it's in like this industry or not. So I do think community is important, but I do think it has become a meme and it's like more of just like, I mean, there's a very huge difference between like a community and like governors. Like some people are just there to like use your product and like promote it or like do whatever. But then there's people actually care about shaping the future of it. So I think it could be kind of more focused on like the actual types of people, as like Jules said. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of it too is just that we're not giving community any like discrete powers or control. So I think that just creates like a lot of problematic 
behavior around it. And I think people also generally take advantage of like benevolent, maybe community members that are eager to participate or support your brand um, and don't actually like invite them into the process. Like, I think we just got in this really weird place of like community is the moat, um, which to me feels like you're taking advantage of people or you're not actually empowering them like in your organization. It's like a way to keep them um, at a far enough distance. Jules, I gave a presentation like a month ago um, and it mm -hmm. was called, they asked me to give the presentation on like how to build community. And uh, I, I don't know how to share a screen on this or, or I'd share a screen or my share screen's not working. But I basically was like, first slide was like how to build community. And the next slide was like how to build community with a huge red X through it and then it switched to how to build it. Uh, and then it switched to how to build a cult. And I was like, basically the, basically the, yes. whole, basically the whole thesis of it <laughs> Love was like- Love that energy. Yeah, I think, I think a community is like a group of people who like your, they like your business. And um, so like for me, like Blockworks, like Blockworks, the, they like like the mm -hmm. what behind your business. So for media, it's content. They like support your business. They're your fans. They hang out in a Discord. They hang out in a Telegram. You host some events for them. They buy the tickets to the events. They buy your merch, voila, mm -hmm. like you have a community. But the problem mm -hmm. with community is that um, like when we, like community used to be, <clears throat> community used to be Two, you, you might have two communities in your world, in like the meat space world. You had like your Thursday night softball game and like your church on Sunday or something. But now, mm -hmm. yeah. Are those your communities, Sienna? Those are my communities. No, but like you had like two communities. And just like, yeah. well, but on the, on the internet, you have an infinite amount of communities. And what happens there is that communities are great when things are going well, but when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And so I think communities are really, really quick to build but even quicker to disband. And I think uh, like Charles, you mentioned Nike, like Nike didn't build a community, they built a cult following. And I think that cults are when that group of people, like a community is when they're focused around the what, like for media businesses, it's like the content. Uh, for Nike, it's like shoes, but people who like are devoted to Nike, they don't care about the shoes. They care about what Nike stands for. It's the idea behind the business. And so I think that like, a cult is just this devoted attention to a particular idea of belief. And I think that any company, crypto or not, can benefit really, really greatly if they put their themselves at the center of that idea. Like the Link Marines, like that's definitely a cult that are like, they'll like, it's like a toxic like community. They'll like back anything that like the chain link people will say. That is a, that is a definite Have cult. Have you guys but, yeah. read yeah. Toby Shoren's Life After Lifestyle piece? No. It's kind of like tangentially related to this like his is more of like a commentary on um cultural production and like how we've attached that to um products so like his like the argument is that like cultural production has become like this service um for the supply chain like we just keep attaching like these communities and like cultures around like white label products that we just like shove down people's throats um but it's just like i think it's interesting when you think about like kind of furthering that argument is that i think where we're starting to like circle back on is that culture like slash community isn't the product it's organization and organization is like a huge part of you know the byproduct of that and um there's potentially like 
not only a shift in culture, but a shift in like how we organize and that culture is a means of like how we proliferate the effort of organizing. And that is like when it becomes most powerful because who wants like a, like a random group of like super fans, like sure that's awesome. And like, yeah, they're going to buy your tickets and your t-shirts and all these things. But like when you actually invite them into the process of organizing, like that's when I think it'd be like things start to shift. Yeah, I think that really emphasizes, I mean, bringing it back to DAOs is like the DAO needs a vision. Like if like without a vision, you can't have a cult or a community or like users who actually support the future of it. And I think a lot of DAOs are lacking vision because of like the immediate decentralization, like from the core team passing over ownership to like everyone. Like who's leading this now? We're all confused. We're like running around with our like heads cut off and like we just can't make things like happen. So yeah. I mean, that's the power of, of, of meme. Like Kevin Owaki has done that so beautifully. Yeah. Like Gitcoin doesn't even have a, a protocol yet. Like their DAO isn't a protocol DAO, but their meme is so powerful of public goods. Like that is the mission and like core ethos of the, like the, the DAO. And if you're not like participating in the meme of public goods and like that culture, you're, there's no way you're part of that organization. Like every single person that's part of Gitcoin DAO is like bought in on that culture and meme. You're basically a bad person if you don't support public goods. Like you can't really argue with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so Gitcoin doesn't have a community, right? They have a, they have a cult that's based around this idea of public goods. So I think all all these every every crypto company was like, we have a no. I just I just skimmed Toby's piece, like this life after lifestyle, and he it's like he nailed it. It's like the lifestyle brands. Yeah, it's like um, I, I won't actually read it. I'm not giving it justice, but like. It's life. The idea that every brand was a lifestyle brand is the when really they were just these white labeled D 2 C products. Is the same idea that every NFT project was a was a community. Like it's the they're it's the exact same idea just five years later. Um, one one in one in a thousand will be will be the next big brands of the future if they can put themselves at the center of this big idea like a public goods type of thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, you know, to your point, you know. Oh, the, you when you think, what? You know, you know. I did not even mean to do that. That's just my cleverness coming out. I it's also heard that. My pores. Yeah. Uh, but if you think about analogs to what are some of the biggest brands in the world? I mean, look at what Elon Musk has done with Tesla. That's, if that's not the definition of a cult, I don't know what is. Uh, I think Apple, the largest company in the world, you could ultimately say it's kind of a cult. These people do wacky things like you know, there was the whole Steve Jobs and he would go and he had the same dress, right? He had the, it wasn't a high priest gown, but it was black turtleneck and, and blue jeans, you know, and people would camp out every, every time the, you know, there was a new iPhone and stuff like that. So I think God, it's a I good really, I really wish I could share this presentation. I literally have a, a, a slide in the deck. It says, uh, it's the Western wall in Jerusalem next to an Apple store. Jesus, you got historically. <laughs> you got historical on this. Fi- it was a fire presentation, honestly. It was pretty good. Yeah, you know, as a history major, for those of you who might not be aware, so that's a nice touch. Yeah, that's all like that's we all I can bring to the table. That. Yeah, we love that. All right, I feel like we're um, a good, good wrapping point. Yeah, you both have been super generous with your time. Um, if people want to find out more about the work that you do, or follow you, or or whatever, what's the best way to do that? One thing that I do want to kind of plug at the end is. Like what I was talking about earlier about the governance system council that we built, um, we've actually, we're really like started focusing on building it as a standalone product. So that's like 
the full governance protocol that you can fork, but it also comes with like a reference UI that you can copy as well. Um, and like documentation and SDK and all these different things, because there's no governance framework out there that has all the bundled together to make it easy to fork, which is like has decentralization at the forefront in mind. Like the only thing that was really easy to fork before was like setting up a snapshot or a multisig and like compound has a great model, but like it doesn't come with everything. You have to build your own UI. You have to like work around your software development kit needs and documentation. So we are really excited to like start working with tons of partners on that and like have them actually use our governance system and like test it out and experiment for themselves. But yeah, you can, you can reach me at uh, Charlie San Louis on Twitter and at ElementFi. You can also find me on Twitter, Jules Rose with Z's. Um, and also check out what I'm building with Metropolis. I didn't really like give the TLDR of Metropolis, but basically we're building a protocol to manage on-chain org relationships and permissions. Um, and pods, which is like our core product, are the sort of nuclear unit of formation that you can build this sort of relationality between. So creating um, better assurance mechanisms and accountability systems and ensuring that we're building um, safe, secure um, organizations. Who's like the dream customer that you could get in front of right now? Honestly, like we've been pretty picky about who we actually work with. Like I think as you probably noticed on this podcast, like I'm pretty opinionated about the future of um, DAOs and organizations. So um, we're like most focused on working with organizations that, um, you know, need to credibly decentralize and have auditable and provable, um, you know, decentralized power relationships. So um, I think you start to look at a lot of like wonderful DeFi DAOs and protocols and um, ones that uh, have like something very valuable that is worth protecting essentially. Charles, Jules, thank you guys. Thanks guys. Thanks so much. All right, buddy, we're back. And this time we've got matching shirts uh, for those of you who are following along on video. Black, long sleeve. It is the season, baby. <laughs> hey, the classics are classic for a reason. All right. They um, are. I, I'm, although I am feeling a little bit uh, self-conscious about this computer setup. I we've got a very HD camera. Look, I don't think I'm good looking enough for this. Bringing HD out the camera, blemishes, so. you know. Yeah, I, I know. I, I got to tell Rito we actually got a downgrade on the HD quality here because uh, you know I've got a face for radio. But did you get a haircut. You know, you you're the second person asked me that today, and no, I did not. Did you like blow dry your hair haircut. today or something? I can't confirm or deny. You know, I got to look good. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm going on camera. Um, all right, buddy, this, you know, you're not supposed to pick favorites just like your kids, but I got to admit, this was one of my favorite interviews of the season. I think it's been tough to find people who are willing to say or, or genuinely feel positive about the Dow landscape. I think both of these people did, and it was, it was a breath of fresh air, honestly, and I just, I just really enjoyed the conversation in general. I, I love the combo of like Jules is, is like such a deep thinker with like why on-chain organizations should exist in the world and is obviously building Metropolis. Um but like just real has really thought deeply about it. And then obviously Charles is just like, Charles has implemented a lot of this stuff at scale at, at, you know, for, first at maker, right. Which was like the first to really do it. Um, and it was just a really nice call. I thought they bounced off each other really nicely. So I'll throw, I'll, you always ask me first. So I'll, I'll throw this to you. What, what were some of your takeaways? Okay. So I really like the way Jules, and I was hoping that she would do this at the top of the episode. She defined DAOs as on-chain organizations. Yeah. 
I think that's a lot cleaner. You know, I'm still I'm still deciding to what degree I really deeply agree with that, but it's it's a it was a very clean, nice explanation. It was a good impetus for DAOs to exist. And you know, the the more that I think about it, the more that I like her definition that she spelled out. And I think that her what what she laid out in between socialware and trustware was also a big takeaway for me. And I thought you you made some made a really good observation to use her analogy of socialware versus trustware. You know, we talked with Hasu and some of the earlier episodes, the earlier episodes of the season about, you know, where is it appropriate to become a DAO and what maturation of the DAO do we really want decentralization? You know, I think in her definition of like socialware and trustware, you kind of want socialware in the beginning because you point out it's a good way to bootstrap, right? It's easy and cheap and cost effective and just makes a lot of sense in the beginning. But as you get larger and more mature as an organization, you want to be investing in tools that sort of ossify that that trust and remove the need for for trust in organizations. So you kind of get trustware later in a DAO's development. So I, I really liked what yeah. she had to say about that. She really got me thinking. The more I think about what Jules said about that, the more I like it. And and the reason for that is um and I still do agree with what I said about like so social I think you need to have just like socialware at the beginning or like you don't want to put in place these like you know hard coded trust systems at the beginning. But if you actually zoom out from just building a startup, it's like trust in society is eroding, right? And like we this week, the biggest thing that happened this week was like SBF interviewing um, at the New York Times' deal book summit with with Sorkin. And it's like you just look at like I feel like trust in governing govern governments is eroding, like trust in like large financial institutions is eroding, like trust in like kind of mainstream media outlets is eroding a bit. And when you think about what makes societies amazing societies it's really actually not governance stuff it's it's trust like trust is the backbone of society um and it's like if if on-chain organizations can bring more trust to or to society like right now it might seem kind of crazy to put organizations on chain but like you could see this world where like that flips one day and it's like you can't have an organization if it's not on chain or or else people won't trust it It'll take time, but like that could that you could see that happening. I think it was Selkis who originally pointed this out, you know, in one of the ways that he's described Masari over the years, which was it's it's not even the Bloomberg for crypto, it's the Edgar database for crypto, which is almost one layer of infrastructure below the Bloomberg of crypto. And back in that we talked about this during the episode, but when Benjamin Graham was famously writing, you know, the intelligent investor or whatever, it was very difficult to actually procure good information about companies. But when Edgar launched and became a thing, eventually it was like, oh, this is actually really helpful. And that morphed from, oh, this is good and helpful to companies actually have to do that because we view this as something that this is the best way to get information out there to everyone in a transparent way. That was sort of an Overton window shift. And, you know, one thing that I've sort of been thinking about internally, and this gets to where we were talking about how much of these things are actually just societal choices. I'm I'm starting to wonder and play with this idea that we might need an Overton window to shift uh, for a lot of crypto to work. And I think I, I think that was a big question that I walked away from this from this episode with is is how much how much of this stuff do we need to just is is it just a matter of time before some of these Overton window shifts that yeah, you, you wouldn't trust an off-chain organization because why would you? It's opaque. You know, you could you could see a future where, you know, everything being on-chain is 
demanded of people. But I also wonder, you know, zooming out for a second, talking about this neutral financial layer that we're trying to build, I wonder, you know, society doesn't seem to want or value that at this particular moment in time. So I'm wondering how much we need an Overton window to shift for a lot of what we're building to make sense. So when you look at like how the internet was created, it took like 50 years, right? Like protocols start getting built in like the 70s and the 80s and then you don't it doesn't doesn't really take off until the mid 90s and then you don't get Facebook until 2004 and then you don't get like the Ubers and Lyfts until 2008 and like that's like a 30 year window 40 sometimes depending on how you look at it like a 40 year window and I think we always said with crypto like we're just going to speed run all of that because we have web 2 social networks as the distribution layer the internet didn't really have that native distribution layer baked in and so like crypto is just going to go much 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 faster um I know, but I'm starting to rethink that. It will go much faster, but like I'm just starting to think that some of this stuff just takes time because you need society to actually catch up to what the technology is, the problem that technology is trying to solve. Mm. And I think that's what's going to happen here. I think so too. I thought yeah. you made a really good point about cults. I like first that. time for everything. Yeah, first time for everything. <laughs> I like that little rant that you went on. I found myself nodding and. Looking up like this and pondering. Well, well you know what's funny? I, I don't even know if I told you this. I got asked by um, by Workweek, um, it's like Adam Ryan's organization, is another media company, to give this presentation to a bunch of media execs in New York. And the, the I like kicked off this event, and the conversation was about how to build community, and because we've built this community with permies. And um, I, was, I was like, I sat down on a Sunday to make this presentation. I was like, I don't believe that that is a good strategy for every company to just go be like, I want to build a community. It, but building a cult, the, com the few companies that can build these cult followings, really powerful. So glad you enjoyed it. You know what it also made me think about was one of the ideas that, I forget who said this, but it resonated with me and we've talked about it over the years, is one of the advantages of having a DAO in the community as an extension of the DAO is you get to run ideas by them. So in theory, right, it's like, hey, I'm thinking about rolling out a new product feature. What do you guys think? Hey, I'm thinking about potentially taking the business in, in this direction. What do you think? You might be able to, A, get like somewhat useful product feedback, but B, avoid these disasters like when Netflix rolled out Quickster and they far too early separated the streaming part of their business from the legacy DVD shipping and rental part of their business and their stock cratered and all that kind of stuff. They righted the ship, but it just took them a long time and it was a distraction. But one of the business things that you hear a lot of the time that is kind of right, but also really kind of wrong is just talk to your customers and they'll tell you what they want. You can't really do, how many times have we done that where we sat down, talked to our customers, maybe 25 of them and got 25 different pieces of advice because the step that there needs to be some sort of filter there. You have to pick the market and the type of customer that you want before you just start listening to all of your customers. So one of the benefits maybe of having a cult is there's some uniformity in what you're trying to do because there's a bunch of different ways to skin a cat, right? <laughs> I'm blank on the express. There's a lot of different things you could do and having a cult with everyone on the same wavelength is probably more useful than having a whole bunch of different disparate opinions yeah. sometimes. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And like, so one of the parts of this presentation I didn't talk about in the episode is I kind of laid it out in three, in like, th like three ways to build a cult. It's like, first you have to like define your beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Define your beliefs. And usually it's like, the founders or so, if you're using startups as an example, like the founders define the beliefs of the company, then you, then you have to take those beliefs and build and, and you have to take them internal, basically, like you have to get people internally at the company on board. The third thing is then you can take those beliefs and share them externally. The fourth thing though, that 
few and far between, like it's really hard to do is, um, or there just like really aren't opportunities to do it is what Tesla has been able to do, which is you align the cult, uh, financially. Um, and you kind of give them financial incentives. And one of the reasons Tesla's got such a strong cult is because people buy the Tesla stock. So, so they're super bought in. And like, that's, that's what, that's one of the ways that crypto can like incentivize these cults, um, a little bit more is like, there are tokens here. So. I know. Uh, so that uh, we did, I didn't really want to get into this because we're all go already going down a couple of different tangents, but I, not to be annoying about this, but I see a bull and a bear case for that. The bull case is yeah. there are these examples of communities or cults that have been built. So Tesla and Apple being two really famous examples. Here's another example of where community has actually been a moat in a business. Excel forms. You know, there's a million, if you Google, what's this Excel shortcut or how to do this on Excel, there's a bunch of people on these forums that are just dedicated to being, there are all these how-to videos and, and how to do it, et cetera. And that's actually an enormous moat for your business because then you don't need to pay people to go and type mm -hmm. up, how do you do model question X, Y, Z? People are just doing that for free. So there's a lot of a value there. And I could imagine if you could financially incentivize that stuff by non-cash compensation, the form of stock, give people upside, mm -hmm. man. Those are some really powerful levers that you could start to play with. On the other hand, even when I just heard you describing that Tesla example, something <laughs> inside me went, ooh, maybe that's not a good idea. And pretty famously, Enron did that with stock, right? They had their stock price in the elevator. And that, now that's a very famous warning sign that right. you, you don't necessarily want everyone motivated by the stock price. There's something to be said about intrinsic value of work and stuff like that. So it'll, it'll be interesting. It's, it's a new experimental playground. And that's why I actually have a lot of respect for Charles St. Louis and the, the work that he's doing at Element because in addition to building up, we didn't even talk about Element the protocol at all, which is trying to strip out, hey, that's a hearkening back to season one, right? Fixed versus variable interest rate borrowing in, in DeFi. We didn't even talk about that. He's not only trying to build that ship, he's reinventing the ship of, okay, how do you organize a, a uh, a company or a, or a DAO or whatever. So he's trying to build two planes as they're falling in the air. So just a tremendous amount of respect to Charles and, and the pioneer, the work that he's doing at Element. I agree. I agree. Mm. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. Any, anything else from the episode? No, that the, the, you know, the point of this episode, and I think we really got that was this is what are the, what is some of the experimentation that's being done in DAO land that wouldn't necessarily have been possible in uh, corporate governance, corporate finance land. And I thought Jules example of uh, socialware versus trustware was really powerful. And an example of trustware being the governor and the experimentation that Charles is doing with, um, you know, the, the council model at, at, at element and some of the, the, uh, you know, the voting vaults uh, that he described in, in the episode is, was really great. Um, who do we got coming on for the next episode? You know, Kevin Iwaki coming up next. Great. Um, yeah. What are we talking to Kevin Iwaki about? Uh, we are talking to Kevin Iwaki about DAOs in the next bull cycle, but you tell me yeah. what that really means. Well, what it means is, I mean, Kevin Iwaki got brought up actually in this episode by Jules. We didn't even ask her to do that, but it's a great example of someone who's built um, a very strong meme brand. So we should definitely ask him about your building a cult versus building a community question. But I think Kevin is an example of someone who has been able to maintain He's been sort of a face and brand of a DAO without necessarily overpowering how the DAO is run. So I think he's sort of walked the tightrope balance of early leadership days of, of a DAO while actually having it be something that's relatively decentralized and, and keeping that ethos uh, very down pat. So we wanted to get an understanding from him of, okay, 
this is what DAOs look like today. What are the problems? What are the sort of green shoots, promising areas? How do you expect them to change in the next bull cycle? So that's what we're yeah. going to be talking about that. Pumped. Cool. Sweet. See you on the other side, folks. <laughs>